0: Syria has been a killing field for the current regime in Damascus for over a decade, and President Bashar al-Assad is now viewed as a pariah. At this time, it is worth recalling Assad's father, Hafez. Hafez al-Assad loomed large in the Middle East for decades. He was the embodiment of Syrian rejection of Israel. However, he flirted with peace with Israel in the 1990s. How close was Israeli-Syrian peace? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Israeli-Arab-American relations over the last 70 years. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Hafez al-Assad was born in 1930. And French mandate Syria to an Alawite family, a minority Muslim sect in a country dominated by Sunnis. While attending high school in the majority Sunni city of Latakia, he faced anti-Alawite discrimination. This led Assad to seek belonging in the Pan-Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party. In 1950, he joined the Syrian Air Force and quickly rose through its ranks. The military staged coups in the name of the people. Assad played a role in the 1963 Ba'ath coup, leading the effort to take an air base near Damascus. A year after the coup, Assad was named commander of the Air Force and promoted to the rank of major general. A further military coup in 1966 gave Assad another promotion, becoming the minister of defense. After the 1967 Six-Day War, in which Syria lost the Golan Heights to Israel, there were tensions between the civilian leadership and military leadership represented by Assad. Assad and those loyal to him staged a coup in 1970, after which he was installed as president. He dominated Syria with an iron grip for 30 years. Assad kept military pressure on Israel, but was able to do so while keeping the Syrian-Israeli border quiet. He did this By using Hezbollah during the Iran-Iraq War, all the Arab states, except Syria, supported Iraq. The Alawites were offshoots of the Shia Muslims and supported a Shia Iran. Assad saw how Iran could be useful to him. Hezbollah received Iranian backing to push Israel out of southern Lebanon, a security zone that Israel insisted upon to protect its northern towns from Hezbollah rockets. After the Gulf War of 1991, U.S. President, George H.W. Bush promised a revived attempt at resolving the Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab conflicts. Bush would implement this policy by convening a peace conference in Madrid in October 1991 and inviting Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinians. Since the 1960s, Syria had been aligned with the Soviet Union. Assad knew that Syria had to ingratiate itself with the U.S., taking part in the American-backed conference, might just do that. The Madrid conference didn't go the way Assad hoped. He assumed that no Arab player would go its own way with Israel. The Oslo Agreement of 1993 and the jordan Israel Peace Treaty of 1994 dispelled this notion. Yet Israel was not ignoring peace with Syria. In 1993, Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel, privately offered Israeli withdrawal from the Golan Heights in exchange for normalization and peace with Israel. This became known as the pocket. However, for the most part, the Syrian track looked different than the Palestinian and Jordanian peace tracks. Assad was viewed as a villain who supported Hezbollah and Palestinian rejectionist groups in Damascus. Why give up the strategic Golan Heights overlooking
1: Israel to him? If a part of the Golan Heights would remain under the occupation, then how the Syrians would feel that they have uh, reach peace with Israel in any peace agreement.
0: Assad avoided peace gestures and did not offer genuine condolences even after the death of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Israel's leading novelist, Amos Oz said Assad's idea for peace was no warmer than Israel sending a fax that it received the Golan. The land was tangible, but the peace was not. After Rabin's assassination in 1995, the Syria-Israel track slowed down, but was not completely forgotten. When Ehud Barak ran for premier in Israel in 1999, he pledged to get Israel out of Lebanon. Yet Barak knew that Assad dominated Lebanon. He thought of a breakthrough with Damascus would mean a two-for-one peace. With Assad in poor health, the timing of the Syrian track became even more important. Assad broke the stalemate when on December 7, 1999, he unilaterally dropped all preconditions for resuming talks. And raise them to the political level, authorizing his foreign minister Farouk Ashara to meet directly with Barack under American auspices. Even as the Syrians met with Barack in Washington and Shepherdstown, West Virginia, Barack began to get nervous, citing political considerations. Eventually, Assad too would move away from the peace efforts, partly due to Barack's backtrack and criticism of Shara's concessions at Shepherdstown. It all came to a head in that Geneva summit meeting between President Clinton and President Assad on March 26, 2000, and the talks ended in failure. The Israeli-Syrian-American peace track of a decade had officially collapsed. Assad himself died of a heart attack just a few months later on June 10. Here to discuss Hafez al-Assad are three people. Ed Juregian, Gamal Hilal, and Mike Herzog. We're going to do this in two parts. First, I'm going to interview Ed Juregian, and then I'm going to do a subsequent interview with Gamal Hilal and Mike Herzog. Ed Juregian is a career American diplomat, holding many diplomatic posts during the Reagan, H.W. Bush, and Clinton administrations, and even served as U.S. ambassador to Syria and subsequently to Israel. In his capacity as the director of Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, Ed has spent decades working with former Secretary of State James Baker. Ed joins us from Houston, Gamal Halal. He was a member of the U.S. peace team at the State Department. Apart from being a diplomat, he was the interpreter for several American presidents and secretaries of state. He has spent many hours sitting with Hafez al-Assad interpreting Assad for American presidents and American secretaries of state. He owns his own consulting firm today. He joins us from just the outside of Cairo. Mike Herzog is a retired Israeli Defense Force Brigadier General. Throughout his career, he played an important role in Israeli talks with Arab neighbors, including Syria. He is currently one of my colleagues at the Washington Institute. He joins us from the Tel Aviv area. Some people don't recall Hafez al-Assad. They've heard a lot about his son and all the killing that's been going on in Syria, tragically, for a decade now. We want to understand how Hafez al-Assad is different than his son, Bashar al-Assad. Tell us about the man and tell us about what made him tick.
1: Well, he was one of the most complex leaders in the uh, Arab world, yet at the same time a geostrategic thinker. Kissinger described him as probably the most intelligent Arab ruler at that time. And when I was in Damascus for those three years between 1988 and 1991, I think I had at least 35 private meetings with him. And uh, this is in addition to senators and congressmen and secretaries of state, former presidents, Jimmy Carter coming and going. He would always talk in narratives, historic narratives. And in the beginning, you think it was a waste of time, that he was not answering your questions. But he used the historic narratives to make his points. And one quickly learned that you had to really pay attention to these narratives because they were exactly the methodology in which he was expressing his message. These meetings lasted for hours. And we coined the word, Secretary Baker and I, at the time, bladder diplomacy. Now, there was no question... In terms of human rights, he was an autocrat, a dictator. He would brook no dissent. We saw that in Hama in 1982. Uh, obviously, his son has learned those lessons very well, as we see what Bashar al-Assad has done in contemporary times. But at the same time, he was a geopolitical thinker. And he knew what the balance of power was in the Middle East. He knew that Syria and the other Arabs were disadvantaged in front of Israel's military superiority and strong backing from the United States, but he also realized when I got there that there was a mutual interest in improving relations with the United States since we were such a key player in the equation. When the chessboard started to shift with the fall of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall, the pace of our negotiations and relationship was enhanced. I think that's one of the reasons I gained even more access to him at that time. You have to remember that Assad, and I heard so many of his narratives on this, that peace with Israel could only be negotiated through the United Nations and the Geneva Conference. And I would ask him, why are you so focused on that instrumentality? He said, because the balance of forces are against us. Your country is heavily biased for Israel. We need a neutral intermediary, and that is the UN and the Geneva Conference. And we had to get him off of that. And that was one of the major challenges we had. And really the subject of Baker's many shuttle trips from Damascus to Jerusalem is to get him off of that. And I would spend a great deal of time telling him and trying to educate him that it's not going to work because the Israelis simply do not trust the United Nations. They've had, from their point of view, very unfortunate experiences with the United Nations. And they don't trust them as an intermediary, but they trust us, the United States. And we can be that, I never used the word honest broker, but I said we could be the valid interlocutor between you and the Israelis. Baker calls me and says, I'm going to be in Lisbon. I want you to come and bring the Syrian foreign minister because I'm going to have a very important letter from President Bush inviting him to direct negotiations with Israel. This eventually became the Madrid Peace Conference.
2: As Warren Christopher was greeted by Foreign Minister Farouk al Sharrah, it was suggested Christopher was
1: carrying a security proposal from the Israeli Prime Minister to Assad. Now, remember, Israel had been asking for this at that time 40 years to get directly engaged with its Arab neighbors in direct negotiations because I remember very well when I was ambassador to Israel, Yitzhak Rabin telling me, you know, We have no greater partner in the world than you, the United States, but I prefer to negotiate directly with our Arab neighbors, because nobody can present our views better than ourselves. So we return from Lisbon, and I'll tell you, in my diplomatic career, that was probably one of the periods, I'm setting aside uh, civil wars, wars, terrorist threats, and all that, but in terms of substantive pressure, I was under such pressure as the man on the spot in Damascus, from both President Bush and Baker in Washington and Hafez al-Assad and Farouk al-Shara in Damascus, who were analyzing every single word, I'm not exaggerating, in Bush's letter to Assad and asking incredibly complex questions and hypotheses on what it all meant. And the pressure I was getting from Washington was to deliver Let's, what's the response? Get a positive response. The pressure I was getting from Syrians is, can we really trust you? And it took six and a half weeks.
0: In all your 35 sets of conversations with Assad, did he ever confide in you what this meant to him personally, philosophically, that the leader of the rejectionist camp for decades, Syria was, in many ways, you know, was now going to be making this switch to a peace negotiation.
1: David, it was never in his persona or personality to admit a setback. So he acted on setbacks. And as I say, he was a geopolitical thinker, made his calculus, realized that the chessboard had changed and acted accordingly. But no, the answer to your question, he never, never in any of my conversations sort of said, you know, we lost our patron. The landscape has changed. I've been disadvantaged. He would never admit something like that. And of course, he knew it was a big deal, but it wasn't in his character to explicitly describe it in those terms. He just made his calculus. And then by the decisions he took, that was the answer.
0: Could you just say a few words about the contrast between Syria and Egypt? In other words, Sadat makes peace. Sadat flies to Jerusalem, goes to the Knesset. It
1: electrified the world. We talked about gestures, and it was simply not in his persona to make a Sadat gesture. He felt that he would be playing such an ultimate card without being assured of the consequences. He was very suspicious, even up to the end, that the Israelis would deliver. He had a great deal of respect for Rabin. Albeit they never met, they did have a relationship and a sense of mutual respect. I know that from both being ambassador to Damascus and ambassador to Israel. For example, when I was in Israel, I was having a meeting with Rabin when he was notified that Hafez al-Assad's son, Basil, was killed in an accident on the way to the airport. So I got the news from Rabin. And Rabin told me, he said, Ed, will you please have your ambassador to Damascus convey my personal condolences to Hafez al-Assad on the death of his son? And that happened. And so Assad and Rabin had mutual respect, but Assad was never able to satisfy Rabin's need as an Israeli prime minister, to make that gesture, which would mobilize Israeli public opinion and say, oh my God, let's go for this. This is precious, like the way Anwar Sadat did. That just didn't happen. But did he ever
0: talk to you about Hezbollah? Because there too, it's an interesting contrast. On one hand, he was scrupulous in keeping his own border with Israel quiet on the Golan, and yet he was clearly a backer of Nasrallah and Hezbollah which, you know, was to make Israel bleed in Lebanon.
1: I think Hafez al-Assad looked upon Hezbollah as an important pawn, a proxy that served his ends on putting pressure on Israel as a so-called resistance movement, but thereby have enough distance so that Syria would not be directly implicated by any lethal action unless it got out of hand, and also by so doing bolstering his relationship with the Iranians. So sitting in Damascus, he was looking upon Hezbollah as that pawn and as part of his overall relationship with Iran. That's why I said at the beginning, this guy was a geopolitical thinker, very Machiavellian in his calculations. And that's how he looked up upon Hezbollah.
0: So Barack clearly wanted that deal. And yet the deal falls apart. They say hindsight is twenty-twenty, But what could have salvaged that deal? Or do you think Assad wanted it? Uh, We get down to this crucial meeting. It's like out of a Hollywood movie in Geneva in March 2000. looks like he's dying. Is he trying to do this deal and clean the table, so to speak, for his son to take over? Why does the deal fall apart if you had to assign blame on the American, Israeli, and Syrian sides?
1: Well, I wasn't there. So I was ahead of the Baker Center. But when he got to Geneva... And he came with a lot of bodyguards, but he came with a lot of top policy advisors. He was serious. Contrary to some of the speculation I've seen that, oh, he was dying. He, you know, he wasn't ready. He didn't want to do anything. He was serious. And I think he was conscious of what you said, of succession, of Bashar, a real neophyte politically. And if he could pave the way, Syria would be more secure under a succession scenario. But when he got to Geneva, What I've been told is that meeting substantively broke up in the first half hour of that meeting. I've heard even five minutes after Clinton made a proposal that he didn't like. Okay, five minutes. And in my interpretation, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it was that Bill Clinton was passing on an Israeli proposal, period, without saying that here's what Ehud Barak, I believe that he is really intent, Mr. President. Here's what he's given me. Here's what I think can be doable.
0: Now we're 21 years after March 2000. People said, look at all the killing going on in Syria. Bashar is is a pariah. He is not his dad. His dad might have been a killer too, but not to this scope. Hundreds of thousands dead. Maybe it's good he never got to Golan Heights.
1: There's no question that the issue of Israeli-Syrian peace is off the table until and if. There is a political transition in Syria to what I would call a representative government, and there is the restoration of a real state. So the issue of an Israeli-Syrian peace treaty is off the table, and I don't think any Israeli government would even countenance going into an agreement until there was a political transition and the restoration of a viable state that Israel could do business with and we could do business with. Ed
0: Jaregian, Director of Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. I want to thank you for your time, for your reflections on a key time of Middle Eastern history. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you very much, David. Good being with you. We'll be back after this very brief message.
1: Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site.
0: How does a person deal with a changing regional and world order, but having, at some sense, a certain unchanging persona? And if so, was that related to who he was? Was it related to the fact that he headed a minority regime in the Arab world as an Alawite? You had to be more Sunni than the Sunnis in this regard in the early 90s? So I'm trying to understand that. Gamal, why don't I start with you? I think
2: for Assad, peacemaking with Israel was nothing more than mere transactional issue. He really did not believe in the culture of peace, if you will, or what you should do as a leader in order to promote that peace and give it a chance. For him, it was a cold, calculated transaction. I want one, two, three. I'm willing to give you one, two, three, and that's it. Don't ask me for anything more. In other words, he wanted to correct what was lost on the battleground by being very tough around the negotiating table. I remember in 1994, we had a trip with President Clinton, to the region, I believe it was October 94. And the last stop was in Saudi Arabia, where we met with King Fahd. And the first question King Fahd asked President Clinton is How is the Syrian Israeli track? Is it moving? Is there any hope? And I think President Clinton really summed it up very clearly. He said Look, Your Majesty, President Assad wants to get more than what Sadat got, but he's not willing to do what Sadat did. And that is a problem for me. That is a problem for the entire objective that we're trying to achieve.
0: Mike, how do you see it?
3: I basically agree with Gamal. Uh, Unlike Gamal, I did not have the pleasure of meeting Hafez al-Assad, but I feel I know him quite well. In the 1980s, I was head of the Syrian branch in the Israeli military intelligence, and I later participated in our negotiations with the Syrians. Hafez al-Assad was a hardcore Arab nationalist. He grew up on this ideology, on wars with Israel, on animosity to Israel. In his office in Damascus, there was a huge painting of the famous Hittin battle from 1187 when Salah ad-Din beat uh, the Crusades. In his mind, Israel is a Crusade entity in this region. Egypt signed peace with Israel and left the Arab fold to his mind. The Soviet Union collapsed. There was war in Iraq, so Iraq also was out of the question. He saw that Israel is a formidable military force, and he came to the conclusion that if he wants to regain lost territory, he has to sit down and negotiate with Israel, but as a cold transaction where he takes all the territory, and yes, he wanted no less than Sadat, and gives the minimum. And let's not forget that he's the one that lost the Golan Heights to Israel in 1967 as defense minister. So I think that was very heavy on his conscience.
0: So do you think that he really wanted a deal, or do you think he liked the process more than he wanted the outcome?
3: No, I think he wanted a deal. I'm not suggesting that he did not want a deal. With time, he also was more interested in uh, getting American support for a deal, financial support, and so on, and perhaps reducing his dependence on other actors as well. It so happened that we didn't get a deal. And one of the reasons, historically, I think, both with Rabin and with Barack, is that there was no synchronization, namely, when Rabin was more interested, Assad was less interested, and vice versa. And the same with Barack. We didn't get to the point where at the same time, both of them really wanted to break through.
0: Let me ask you this. Talking about the 90s, one of Assad's instruments, it seems, and one of you mentioned it, was Hezbollah. He seemed to have this instrumentalist view of political Islam as if it suits my calculus as a chess player here, use whatever you can. Kamal, do you agree with that?
2: Yes, I agree 100% because Hezbollah for him was nothing more than a tool in his toolbox. He didn't look at it from an Islamic group or organization. He didn't even pay attention to the religious affiliation. He talked about him as basically a, quote unquote, an Arab fighter. So he didn't really look at the religious depth of what Hezbollah is all about. He looked at it as a very effective tool that he can always use and deploy in the absence of using the Syrian armed forces, which he had really no intention of using his own armed forces against Israel.
0: Mike, do you see it the same way?
3: Yes. Assad was no fan of Islamists at all. And we all remember what he did to the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria and Hama in 1982, he belonged to uh, the Ba'ath Party, which is a secular uh, party, never subscribed to any Islamist uh, school of thought or ideology. Assad kept his ballet and arms distancing, was never enamored with Naswala, hardly met him. And this is very different from the attitude of uh, his son Bashar, who came not only to admire Naswala, but also to basically placed himself in what's called the resistance axis in the region. Assad father would never do so. And when it comes to his relations with Iran, that developed mainly because of his rivalry with the uh, Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq. I don't think there was a real ideological orientation there.
0: What was the moment that you look back and say, here there could have been a breakthrough, And also, if you could talk about the key moment of of March 2000, and could this have been handled differently by Clinton, Barack, and Assad, the talks in Geneva? First of all, as you noted,
3: there were numerous Israeli prime ministers in the 1990s and 2000s that dealt with Syria, and each came with a different nuance. And often you had to start go back and restart some elements. Secondly, there was a debate in Israel whether to go first for a peace process with the Palestinians or to go first for Syria. And there were arguments in favor of Plan A or Plan B. The thinking was that with Syria, it is a difficult negotiation, but once you break through You remove a military threat, Lebanon could go along, other Arab countries might go along, and you establish more stability in strategic terms, but you do not resolve the Palestinian issue. And some thought, because this resonates with the Arabs as a whole, you should go first there. There was another consideration, which is with Syria, it was clear that you have to go back to generally speaking, the 67 lines, and that would set a problematic precedent for uh, Palestinians. Rabin tried first with Syria, and in uh, the summer of 1993, he gave Secretary uh, Christopher a so-called pocket, a deposit of uh, Israeli implicit willingness to withdraw from the Golan Heights in its entirety. But when this was relate to Assad without Rabin's consent. His response was very cool. Rabin decided to go for the Oslo process. I do feel that there was an opportunity there, but most of all, I do think that a real missed opportunity was in 2000 with uh, Barack, because then I think Israel for the first time came up with a formula that could resolve the uh, territory issue. The territorial dispute was whether we should go back to the uh, 1923 international borders set between France and Britain, which Syria never recognized, or go back to the June 467 lines, which Syria demanded. And there are differences between them. And what happened uh, is that in the... uh, Barack Syrian negotiations, Israel came up, showed the Syrians that if they stick by the June four sixty seven deployment of forces, Syria might even lose territory. So it was agreed that we should reconstruct the border together and then call it the June 67 borders. So that was, I think, a breakthrough that could have enabled, because this was most important to Assad. To your question about March 2000, and I understand Gamal was there, my understanding was, first, it is true that Assad came to the meeting in Geneva very sick. He passed away about two months later. He was tired. And I do believe that he was still interested. He would not have come to Geneva and taken, I don't know, 135 rooms in a hotel there were he not interested but he believed that he's going to hear a new offer and receive what he wanted in terms of territory. And I understand that the way it was portrayed to him shut him down pretty soon. Essentially, it was after six minutes. I do believe that there was a problem with the preparations because no American spoke to Assad personally before that critical meeting.
0: Let me ask you, Kamal. You were actually in the room with Assad.
2: Before I talk about the March meeting, let me just go back and say one thing. I think it's a mistake to think of Assad and peacemaking and lost opportunities in one sentence. In other words, Hafez al-Assad didn't really care about lost opportunities or gained opportunities. The last thing on his mind was to do something in order to promote or encourage the other side to go for peace. He really wanted a total submission from the other side. Either the Israelis will come and tell him, here is your territories back into June 4, 67, or he will use the Americans in this case to beg him to continue in the process. So I don't think he looked at it from lost opportunity point of view or gained opportunity. The maximum throughout all the years and efforts that he was really willing to do was to uh, return to Israel some of the remains of some of the Israeli soldiers back. That for him... We'll give him a cover because under humanitarian, it will not be viewed as a gesture for peace. It will be viewed as a humanitarian gesture. Now we go back to the Geneva meeting. The Geneva meeting, actually, to describe it very clearly, about a week or 10 days before the meeting took place, we were in Israel with the peace team, and we met with Prime Minister Barack, and we basically were trying to find out how far is he willing to go, in terms of leaving the Golan Heights and the the shoreline of the lake. And he didn't give us a clear answer. He kept giving us the words like few, some meters, few meters, a bunch of hundred meters. So it was not clear. However, he promised us that on the day of the meeting, when we are in Geneva, he will have a secure phone call with President Clinton. And he will give President Clinton his bottom line. And so we went to that meeting and President Clinton took that promise to heart. On the day of the meeting itself, we had the secure phone call and he gave President Clinton nothing, absolutely nothing more than what we had in conversations with him. So actually, President Clinton was trapped in Geneva. He was literally trapped. And when the idea was basically focusing on the line of June 467, will be accepted by both sides, and both sides will have to contribute. That was about six, eight minutes into the meeting. Hafez al-Assad stopped and said, that's it. He does not want peace. This man does not want peace. Because in his mind, for all the years, he was not willing to accept anybody else determining where is the June 467 line except him. I don't think that his health played a role or anything. I agree with Mike. For him to travel, even when he was fragile, to go to that meeting, it was a meeting with the President of the United States. He was supposed to be bringing him some good news about what Prime Minister Barack was willing to do, and yet nothing happened.
0: So let me ask you now in retrospect. Some people say, look, his son Bashar al-Assad is a pariah in the Arab world, often considered a mass killer. Was it maybe fortunate a peace deal did not happen? Gamal and then Mike. I really don't think they focus a lot on the fact that they
2: were Alawite's minority governing Syria because Syria was basically governed by an iron fist. So it doesn't matter which minority you belong to or which majority you belong to. The approach of governing itself through an iron fist policy would put him in a very strong position throughout. I don't think he looked at it that much, but he was not willing or prepared at all, in my views, to show any sign that he was weak or he was pursuing the Israelis or he was trying to do something extra for the Israelis to like him or to give him what he wants.
3: And Mike, how do you see it? Well, many people in Israel believe that. Maybe it was lucky for Israel not to have done the deal, given what we see today uh, in Syria with Bashar al-Assad and uh, Just imagine having uh, ISIS on our border, on the Golan Heights, and so on and so forth. The truth is, it it is more difficult to determine what would have happened had we broke through to peace with Hafez al-Assad, or even after him, because we had uh, even another attempt with Bashar al-Assad in 2010. First of all, in 2008 with Olmert, and then 2010 with Netanyahu. And uh, there's no telling that we broke through to peace whether developments in Syria would uh, be the same as uh, with them today. I do believe that there's no option for Israel to strike peace with Bashar al-Assad for as long as he's there. Maybe in the future, when you have a different leadership with effective control over Syria, with real peaceful intentions, we'll see. But I think with this regime... The game is over. There's no chance whatsoever that any Israeli government will negotiate over the Golan Heights with this regime.
0: I want to thank you both very much for your time and your insights and your recollections of this period of Hafez al-Assad in the 1990s. Thank you both very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you.
0: Hafez al-Assad's persona was as a rejectionist who did not win Israel in the Middle East, and he never hid his views. At the same time, he saw himself as a regional chess player, always calculating the next move. He saw his world was crumbling in the late 80s and the early 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Assad was stuck between a changing world and a fixed persona. His approach was to be transactional. Assad wanted all the lands won by Israel and more, like Anwar Sadat achieved but he didn't want to yield on the spirit of peace, as Sadat was willing to do. Assad wanted to do the absolute minimum to get the absolute maximum. Ultimately, it was not enough. The Assad model suggests that being a very reluctant peacemaker does not produce breakthroughs. Tragically, a peace between Israel and Syria has been elusive and will have to wait another set of leaders and another time. Thank you all very much for listening. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all.